Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host on the West Coast, Jason Snell. Oh, I like that. I like how that sounds. Hey, how are you? I'm good. It's uh, it's good to be back. We have we have seen each other in person since the last episode. That's true. We were at WBDC together in San Jose yeah. and recorded a bunch of tech stuff. So if you're interested in that, there's a whole bunch of stuff on Relay. Uh, but we're back to talk about space because this is Liftoff. Space. space. The space podcast. That's what we do. So We've Got a we, lot, lot, lot going on. Yeah, there there's a lot going on. And uh, we're going to start uh, with our eclipse planning. So we spoke a couple weeks ago about the eclipse coming up in August, and we have some fun ideas about how to cover that as a podcast. I think we're going to do some fun stuff around that. Uh, I did want to update people. I felt like since people know where you're going to be, people should know where I'm going to be. Uh, I was going to go visit family, but turns out they're a little farther south than where I want to be. Uh-huh. And so uh, my family and I are going to uh, Burgess uh, Falls State Park. It's in Tennessee. And there's a link in the show notes. They're doing a whole day of like educational programming and there's going to be like a band and like a picnics, like a whole thing. And so we got tickets to that. So we're going to see it with a bunch of people in a state park and the state park's in a pretty good spot. And uh, we are, we're excited about that. So I think it'll be, I think it'll be a good time for all involved. And I will be in Idaho. So hopefully the weather will work for both of us. And just for those who are curious, speaking of eclipse planning, before this very episode began recording, we were talking about what we're going to do. And I think it, I think it sounds like we're going to probably try to do an eclipse special after uh, after the eclipse for liftoff, like a bonus episode. And so stay tuned for more about that. But uh, hopefully we'll find a way to share kind of our excitement about seeing the eclipse if you don't get a chance to see it yourself. Or if you do, then you can relive your excitement with us after after we get to experience it too. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a sort of a first reactions, mostly just us just screaming. Yeah, I think that's going to be it. It's going to be natural <laughs> sound of both of us in different parts of the country going, oh my God, yeah. oh. And then, uh, yeah, that'll be it. And then they play the theme music and that's the end. Yeah. That's the end. Uh, there's an article uh, in the show notes as well about projected traffic so we spoke about this <laughs> you're camping yeah. the night before yeah um, it's a, it's a yeah there's a campsite so so i've got plenty even if there's traffic so bad that we get there at three in the morning it's fine um but yeah we're camping the night before so that on the day of we can just wake up and walk up a hillside and watch the eclipse which seems prudent because a lot of people on that and it's morning in or, or early afternoon depending on where you are but it's like whenever it is the the idea is that people are going to be driving to the areas of totality and there's going to be gridlock in a lot of different places that's unusual for that time of day and those roads mm-hmm. yeah so so we are now thinking about doing the same thing uh either camping or finding someplace close uh because this state park from our house is like three and a half or four hours, and we yeah. we want to be there in the morning, um, you know, well before it starts. And so we're gonna we're we're evaluating all of that now. But there's a link in the show notes about that because I know we had mentioned it briefly. I think it's gonna be a real thing, especially like I'll be kind of near Nashville, which is the biggest city in the path. Like uh, I think I need to do some I need to do some planning. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's um we we bought a tent. <laughs> like I don't actually have a tent, but. So I bought a tent so that, which we may only use for the one night, but like, you got to do what you got to do. 
in order to be Eclipse travelers. And I, I, all the hotel rooms that are anywhere along the path have basically been sold out for ages. And I, I was looking out in like Bend, Oregon originally, and they, they like a year ago, apparently a year ago, like a Japanese tour group reserved every hotel room in the town that's in 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 that part of oregon in eastern oregon that's in the path of totality like so you basically can't stay there so hence my alfalfa field that we'll be camping on in idaho (laughs) so yeah don't leave it till the last moment try to try to do some pre-planning if you're going to go yeah i put it on my to-do list for this weekend to to nail that down so good so we're going to talk about nasa extreme environment mission operations uh (laughs) abbreviation nemo which is are we are we going to find what you did there it's good. So we've spoken a bunch in the past about High Seas, which is the the mission that takes place on a mountain in Hawaii. This uh, it's a an isolation mission. So you uh, obviously aren't space, but you are living kind of as if you are. So you're in a uh, in a remote location. You're only with your crew. You have mission objectives. You're very often testing equipment and processes and and. Uh, it's a a way to replicate some of the circumstances of a space mission without the actual expense or or risk. Uh, High Seas has a sibling mission, this Nemo operation, and they uh, are getting actually have just started uh, the uh, the 22nd expedition. And so this takes place off of Key Largo, Florida, which is a beautiful part of the world. And it takes place in the Aquarius Laboratory, which is uh, the world's only undersea research station. It's like 62 feet below the surface. And this crew is down there, and they are performing mission objectives. And if you think about, we've all seen the footage of astronauts training in the big uh, swimming pools, right? Because you can you can have neutral buoyancy, and you can be in a... Um, you know, in a situation where, you know, replicating what you may do, like at the International Space Station, for instance. So they practice a lot of maneuvers for construction and, and moving things around, practicing spacewalks. Uh, you can do all that stuff uh, on the ocean floor as well. So they're they're testing equipment, uh, their uh, technology for precisely tracking equipment, uh, which is um, something that, you know, you want to make sure you know where everything is at all times. So some new processes around that. And then a... Um, what I think is the most interesting, uh, looking at hardware that could help a crew evacuate if someone is injured uh, on a spacewalk, say at the moon or on Mars, if some if someone becomes injured, uh, how you can evacuate them. So all this stuff is going on now. And uh, I don't know about you, Jason, I wasn't familiar with this before it popped up in the news this week. No, no. No, I had no idea. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun idea. But below the ocean surface near Key Largo, Florida... The story says that's just like uh, I don't know. I love the idea. I I knew that they did. There was underwater like testing. I've, I, I you know what it is. I've seen stories about astronaut training and about extended uh, you know duration space flight that have mentioned underwater habitats, but I don't think I've ever really thought about like well where is that and how often do they do they use that and 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 what is that for? And it sounds like this is this is it. This is what they do is they use this Aquarius lab under the you know underwater in order to to do this testing but it's cool like we're trying to find extreme environments right to get as close as you can to reality because you can't you can't do the real thing so you try to get as close as we can here on earth yeah so there's some links to that in the show notes uh including some fun pictures of uh, astronauts you know uh, in scuba gear uh next to coral reefs and stuff so uh, a lot of fun there 
Uh, we also uh, wanted to let listeners know this weekend could be a extremely rare uh, double header <laughs> launch weekend. So SpaceX was supposed to launch last week on a recycled Falcon 9, excuse me, flight proven. Excuse yes, me. that's right. Pre-owned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> certified. <laughs> certified, though. Uh, uh-huh. Falcon 9. Uh, that got pushed back to this coming weekend. They already had a launch scheduled for this weekend. So one is at uh, Vandenberg. One is at the Cape in Florida. So it could be an uh, exciting weekend for those of you who like to watch uh, like to watch SpaceX launches. They're going to be... <laughs> We have a real busy weekend if everything holds to plan. Yeah, that's uh, keep watching the skies, I guess, like literally. But uh, that's funny. I wonder what their issues are in terms of their launch, uh, launch control. If they have multiple control rooms or if they just have a way, right? Because that's a little bit of a problem, right? It's like you can't, probably can't do two things at once. I'm sure these are are not actually like happening at once, but they may have to be. They got to be aware of like their people and their equipment and how to be able to turn from one to another. So that's that's kind of an interesting problem to solve. I think there's like 48 hours between them, but but yeah, I had the same thought of you know you only have a set number of like uh, you know personnel I mean, who are trained da- for this and, and like data channels of like monitoring the launch and all. Even if you're using equipment at the launch sites, they're probably my understanding is that a lot of that stuff is is still it's going through the SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, I want to say, yes. which is in LA, mm-hmm. and so. You know, that they don't have, I assume they don't have double, you know, double facility that, and so it's just, it's an interesting little problem. Sometimes I think about that of like the, the, you solve the big problems of we put a rocket up into space and then there's the (laughs) IT problem, which is, oh yeah, how do we do this? How do we have, (laughs) right? And it's like, this is not the hard problem, but it's not necessarily the problem that you've been thinking about. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. And those are always fun to watch. Yeah, they do a good job with the webcast. And this is part of the company's ongoing and ever-increasing launch schedule for 2017. Like, they're they're getting to a point where it's going to be every couple of weeks. Uh, but this is the side effect of that, right? That if one slips a little bit, you're going to bump into some into something else. And, uh, I would you know, this time maybe they got lucky because they're on opposite coast. But what if you've got, you know, two from your launch site in Florida because they can still only launch from from one pad there. So I I find that logistics stuff interesting. So I just, I wanted to bring it up. We have exoplanet news once again. It's the, oh boy. uh, It's the topic that keeps on giving. There are so many, uh, so many things. Well, there's so many exoplanets that how could there not be more news? Uh, Yeah, this, this happened this week that NASA came out with a new press release that is about uh, more, uh, planet candidates, they call them, because there's sort of like a statistical analysis and they find information, but then they want there to be, ideally, they want follow-up to, to verify that these are truly exoplanets, because they're, they're, they've just got their one method of detection, and they, I think, ideally want additional ways to verify the, the, the planetary data. But what's happening here is this is Kepler again, which we've talked about before, and actually Natalie Battaglia, who I interviewed for this podcast a while ago, um, she's she's front and center at all of this because she's one of the key um, scientists working on Kepler. Um, Kepler is basically done with its its mission for uh, surveying in Cygnus. It's had the hardware failures. It's using the solar wind to stabilize itself, but it sort of wrapped up the little patch of sky that it was looking at, and. Uh, and so this release is sort of like, here's the survey catalog. There's a bunch of new planet candidates in the catalog. And now uh, 
K2 mission of Kepler goes on to do other stuff. And these uh, planet candidates are out there for other people to verify their their existence as exoplanets. So 219 new candidates, 10 of which are roughly Earth-sized and located in the, the star's habitable zone. So those are the, you know, those are our favorites in terms of most likely to harbor life. Doesn't mean they, they are, um, but that's 10 more of those. And rem- just remember, not too many years ago, finding an Earth-sized planet in a habitable zone was the big story, right? And now here we are, and oh, there's 10 more. Yeah. Space, space is big, <laughs> and we're getting good at this. And it turns out there are lots of them. So the, the total scores for Kepler in this patch of space that it was designed to look in are in, which is they have more than 4,000 candidates that they've identified, and 2,335 of them have been verified now. Wow as being exoplanets. Pretty good. Remember when there was like an exoplanet? Yeah. It was not that long ago. That number, if you put that on a chart, it it goes way up. (laughs) And keep in mind, this is just a patch of of space that it's looking at. Like if we looked at all of the space, all of the patches, we would, with the technology of Kepler, we would see what there are in space, which is an astronomical number eh, ah. of planets like they're everywhere and and that's the thing is we assume they were everywhere but again it's science you got to actually like look at the data and measure and and say oh yeah it turns out we're not an incredibly rare solar system that has planets planets are everywhere um of the of the 2335 verified and 4034 candidates identified the uh those earth-sized ish habitable zone planets the the goldilocks kind of planets for potential life 50 candidates 30 verified so still pretty good numbers yeah absolutely and there's some there's some interesting things when you look at the the size distribution of these planets so uh rocky earth-sized planets are common um and they measure this up to like 1.75 earth masses half of those are rocky like we are which is uh, important if you, if you think about life in the way that we understand it here on Earth. And the other half become more like Neptune, you know, kind of pulling in hydrogen and helium uh, into these, these, these gas planets. But there's yeah. very few in between, right? Like there's... There's a gap in the data, in fact, that you, you can see that there are these rocky Earth-sized planets that go up to about 1.75 Earth masses. And then there's this little fall-off, and then there's this other category, which is like smaller than Neptune, planets that it looks like started probably started out rocky but accumulated m- m- enough gas, or, or they had enough mass to accumulate more gas, where they became these things that are not, you know, not going to have any life like we know it, because they become more like... Um, Neptune, uh, smaller Neptunes, they basically call them. And and in between those two uh, small-ish planets, so we're not talking gas giants here, we're talking like smaller planets, there are very few. So it sounds like there is a process going on. This is one of those examples, right, about like when I said we know we assume that there are planets but we don't know until we see it Um, we only have one solar system to look at our solar system may be unlikely in certain ways we don't know like what the rules are for like how common are certain kinds of configurations of solar system how common are certain kinds of planets and here's one of our first examples of learning something about planetary evolution that it turns out like you've got this rocky earth-sized ish classification and then you've got these um smaller than neptune gas ball guys 
and and there is there is a gap like so obviously there's a threshold beyond which it sort of runs away and turns into something that is not what we think of with our thin relatively speaking atmosphere um but becomes something more like more like neptune it's a it's it's just an interesting something that we would not have known until we were able to look um and and another interesting about thing about this is we use Neptune as an analog, but as we said in our Ice Giants episode, Uranus and Neptune's composition is pretty different. They're out beyond the the frost line. There's a lot of ice and slush, um, as well as the gas. And these are a lot of these planets, at least, are the idea is that they're rocky, and then they've also accumulated like the Earth, but they've also accumulated this huge gas envelope around them. And that kind of planet doesn't exist in our solar system. These are, you know, these aren't Neptune analogs. These are um, different kinds of beasts, and we don't have any of them. And that's interesting. And that may be, you know, that may just not be relevant for why there's life on Earth, but it may be something interesting about like assumptions we make about the universe based on our solar system may not be true this may be one of those areas where we don't have like like gas giants are common although exoplanets have taught us that sometimes the gas giants are very close to the star which ours aren't and now we have these rocky neptunes that are not present in our solar system but seem quite common in the stars that we've surveyed so it's kind of a cool I, I like it. It's like now now we are learning more. This is stuff that as a kid, just it seemed like it would never be learned. It's impossible to be learned. And then <laughs> here we are. We have a better idea of like what kinds of planetary configurations are common in the galaxy. That's pretty cool. Right. Because it's easy to look at our own solar system and assume that all others have all the same parts we have. Right. Yeah. And, and that's not the case. We have these rocky Neptunes. We have these big, hot Jupiters super close to their stars. And, you know, we have a subset of what's what's possible. Other systems have different things, and there still very well could be other classifications of planets that we haven't seen yet or, or we've seen but don't fully understand yet. I, I find all of that just, just so fascinating, and it really opens up uh, so many possibilities beyond just what you know we understand here in our little corner of the solar system. Yeah, I mean, throw in the fact that so many of these exoplanets are orbiting around uh, red dwarf stars that right. are much smaller and cooler than the sun. So the planetary, you know, the, the habitable zone is much closer to the star, which means that the planets are probably tidally locked. And there's a question of, like, are there flares and could you live on the on the, the, the edges of those planets where it's sort of permanently sunset and sunrise? Would that be a habitable area? We don't really know. Um, so that's another thing, too, where it's like, well, it turns out stars like our sun, although we thought you know, they were r- relatively common, it was an average star, right? That's always what we were taught. Uh, turns out it's not average at all. Like the most common ones are these little cooler red gas balls, and they have planets, too, but we don't know anything about how that works. So, oh, there's one other thing that uh, and I don't know how much of this is the NASA press release making a big deal of it and how much of it is the press trying to try or or knowing that the press gloms onto this stuff. But there is one little data point about a very particular exoplanet um, that they're calling KOI 7711, which actually literally just means Kepler object of interest and then a catalog number. But it was called out as being the closest Earth analog found in the Kepler data set. It is uh, only slightly larger than the Earth, and I think they said it's like forty percent wider than the Earth, something like that, in terms because you're you're looking at how much it occludes the Sun that it's orbiting around, uh, and its orbit's about a year. So this is an example of um, you know trying to find things that sort of like whose stats are kind of like Earth, mm-hmm. and that that's that one is the closest analog yet. Fun stuff. 
Yeah. Exo- who doesn't love exoplanets? Come on. I love it's exoplanets. It's, it, it's just, it's so amazing. Even the time recording this show, which is almost two years now, how, how much more we've learned from this. The, the Kepler mission just keeps on giving data. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And there are new missions to come that will give us, that will give us way more data about this stuff, as we talked about in um, several of our episodes about exoplanets, that there, there's more, more to come. Um, but Kepler has advanced the, you know, it, it's it's earned back its investment, I think, is the way to put it. Totally. It has really advanced the science dramatically. Yeah. You want to tell us about our sponsor this week? Sure. Uh, this episode of Left Off brought to you by Blue Apron. They are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. I get Blue Apron. Uh, I have two Blue Apron meals every single week with my family, and we love them. Blue Apron sets the highest quality standards. They've got more than 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers that are the source for Blue Apron's food. It costs less than $10 a meal. There's a uh, a bunch of, you get seasonal recipes and these high quality ingredients that come in a box to your door. You can cook them in 40 minutes or less. So it's not going to take you uh, hours and hours to put this together, but you're basing it on these basic ingredients that you can see yourself. So you know what goes into your food and you learn as you go. You learn, oh, this is something I have never done in a recipe before. Maybe I'll do that again. They, the recipes come on cards so that you can not only make that meal in 40 minutes, but then you can make it again later by your own ingredients at the store and make it again with confidence because you know your family likes it. And that is uh, beyond the two meals we get with Blue Apron every week. We have this wonderful thing of several other meals during the week being things we discovered in Blue Apron meals, liked, you know, did a big star on the corner of the recipe card, and now we make those ourselves. So uh, they, the exact amount of each ingredient is in the box, which reduces food waste. They don't give you a giant jar of something that you only need one scoop of. They just give you the scoop. The ingredients are fresh. They guarantee it. If you have any issues with their ingredients, you just call them and make it right. I had that happen one time in two years of using them, and they basically comped us the week and apologized profusely. And uh, then I went to the store and got a replacement and made the meals anyway, which was really great. So there's like no worry that you're going to end up paying for something that is no good. It's not going to happen with Blue Apron. Upcoming recipes on the Blue Apron menu include peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil. Mm, that sounds that sounds kind of Southern. I like it. It, uh, that's a good idea. And I had these last night, spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. And they were very tasty. Zucchini enchiladas. Sounds weird. It was a little weird. Tasted really good. <laughs> that's the magic of Blue Apron. They delivered to 99% of the, con- con- the continental canonical united states there's no weekly commitment you only get the deliveries when you want them if you're not feeling it some week you go to the website and say "Nah, i'm gonna pass on these meals they don't charge you move on to the next week check out this week's menu get three meals free with your first purchase with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create these incredible home cooked meals with blue apron blueapron.com slash liftoff thank you blue apron for your support and for making my menus much nicer than they ever used to be. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So we saw a little, a little NASA history this uh, this past week. For the first time ever, uh, the agency has named a spacecraft for a living person. Yeah, it's it's a break in tradition. Um, it, it's it's really sweet, actually. You get the sense that. They so there's a there's this thing called the solar solar probe plus which sounds a little bit like 
what if Apple made spaceships? (laughs) (laughs) The Solar Probe Plus, it's got a few more features than the regular old Solar Probe. But it's, it's, um, there's this guy, Eugene Parker, and he basically discovered the solar wind, (laughs) like discovered the solar wind, how it works, what it is in 1958. He is 90 years old now. He is still an emeritus professor at the University of Chicago. And it's very clear that when they were talking about who they should name or what they should name this probe, he, his name must have come up. And they thought, well, that would be appropriate. And they, and, they, and they thought, he's still alive. He's still an emeritus professor. He's 90. And I imagine the conversation was something like, well, you know, we've never really named a probe for somebody who's alive. And then somebody said, guys, he's alive right now and very old. Let's name this probe after him right now so he can feel good about it and we yeah. can all feel good out about it. And when it launches, hopefully he's still with us. And when it's doing its job, hopefully he's still with us. But the last thing you should do is not honor the guy who discovered the solar wind <laughs> because he's still kicking around. In fact, maybe there's an opportunity to applaud him for his amazing discoveries and his life's work. And that's what they did. So this is now the Parker Solar Probe, which is uh, it's it's appropriate and it's i think uh, a really nice gesture to name it after this person who is one of the foundational people in understanding the sun and is still with us yeah it's it's really nice and like you said it's going to launch in july uh of 2018 and uh, basically nasa's language is it's the first probe to ever touch the sun so what it's going touch to the do sun. touch the sun it's uh not recommended we're not recommending that to anyone. Don't look at it. Wear gloves. Wear gloves. Don't touch it. Uh, it's going to use Venus uh, and Venus's gravity basically to do seven flybys over seven years. And it's going to fly through the corona as close as 3.9 million miles to the surface. So way back when we did a whole episode on the sun. And this is basically where the, the particles streaming from the sun, the solar wind, become supersonic is in this sort of zone where the probe is going to to be flying through that's seven times closer than any spacecraft has come before uh to the sun it's 10 times closer than than mercury so that kind of puts into perspective how close this is that is an amazing bit of perspective the corona also is the thing that we see when there's solar eclipse right total eclipse as you can actually see that the corona that we don't normally see because we see the the bright disk of the sun and not the not the corona but the corona is basically the part of the atmosphere of the sun if you will and we've never yeah we've never sent a probe this close 3.9 million miles from the what we consider the surface of the sun but it's in this is why we touch the sun with this probe is like it's in the corona it's actually like not it's flying through what we would consider part of the sun's atmosphere which is really unusual and that distance thing i had to look it up like a few times because as a kid you think okay earth is in the United States anyway, 90, 92 million, 93 million miles from the sun. And you think, okay, well, the, the, then there's Venus. Uh, Venus, you know, it's probably at like 40. And then Mercury is probably at like 10, 20. It's really up close. It's not it at all. Like Venus is in the 60s and uh, Mercury is like 42 million miles from the sun. It, it's not that, I mean, it's so close that it is baked. And yet it's not, it, it's only like, half as much a little more than half as much in from the earth and so when you think about that mercury which we think of as incredibly close to the sun is still 42 million miles away this probe is going to go to almost 
four, a little closer than four million miles away. And yeah, and the closest solar probe, it was um, like 28 million miles away. So it's, this is huge. And the technology that is required to do this is, is kind of staggering. Yeah, so it has a 4.5-inch thick carbon shield because this thing, we talk about shielding spacecraft. They're, they're, there's usually radiation issues, so we talked about that on the Juno episode, the, the orbiter around Jupiter, that it is hardened against the radiation there. But you also have, obviously, temperature to deal with uh, at yeah. the corona. So outside temperatures are nearly 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so... NASA's calling this cutting-edge thermal engineering advances. So yeah, this they stuff... say that, that this actually could not have been done a few years ago. Like, the reason that this probe exists now is because the technology for thermal engineering has advanced to the point where they can make a probe that's light enough to be shot into space and yet has enough shielding that it can operate when it's... 3.9 million miles from the surface of the sun and that nasa's uh, press release about this made a big point of saying like I-, I got the sense a little bit like nasa normally doesn't do it this way like like i got i got a sense of almost like putting on sunglasses and like look how cool we are that like hmm. oh cool huh? see uh <laughs> that that they are using this really cutting edge stuff and that this is why this this is why this probe can exist is that this the, the thermal engineering has progressed to the point where they can make this probe possible this isn't about our will like sometimes that's the story with going to jupiter or something it's not oh if only we had the technology it's like no we just need to spend the money but with this it's like they needed to have the technology to shield this thing because while it's 2500 degrees fahrenheit outside on the inside as nasa put it the payload will be near room temperature man that's, Which I, that's I was incredible. Like near, room te- near room temperature, so it'll be like a little warm. It might yeah. be like 80 degrees in there, 90 degrees. But it's going to be, yeah, 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit outside and, and room temperature inside. So that's cutting-edge thermal engineering, sounds like to me. Yeah, it's it's fun to think about this, too. We spoke about this with New Horizons, that so many of these probes are based on technology that's decades old because it takes so long to plan and to build and to, to budget and to launch it. And this one at least seems very different than the way they're talking about it. Like, this wasn't possible 15 years ago. This is something, like you said, it's new. And the trick is making it light enough that you can fly it, right? I'm sure they could have done this a long time ago. And the thing's so heavy, you can't, you can't get it off the ground. Uh, and they're still going to launch it with, like, a Delta IV Heavy, the biggest rocket they have available. But it's impressive. And I think, you know, th- their goals are to learn how energy and heat move through the corona uh, explore why the solar wind accelerates away from the sun, which are, are things not really understood now. And to do that, to have new technology doing it, to have it bear the name of the guy who, you know, discovered the solar wind. It's just, it's all, it's all, it all feels good. It's a, it's a, it's a feel good mission about the sun. Yay. Yeah. About the sun. Who doesn't like the sun again? Montgomery Burns. Montgomery Burns doesn't like the sun, but hmm. everybody else does. So it, it, and it's too like if we want to study a star, this is how we do it, right? Like it's, you know, uh, if we want to study a star up close, we have to study our own sun. And there's there's obviously benefits to understanding how the solar wind affects our planet, and the our set of satellites and and all the stuff that affect us. But if we want to have a better understanding of how stars work and how 
radiation streaming from them works, then then the sun's our only option. Yeah, exactly right. So so it's going to do, there's like four different instrument suites. They're going to look at magnetic fields. They're going to look at uh, plasma and energetic particles. They're going to image the solar wind. Uh, this should give us be- much better understanding about hen- how energy and heat move through the corona um, because they'll it'll be in the corona. Like, what's going on in here? And explore what accelerates the solar wind, what gives it that that blast out into the rest of the solar system. And, uh, and yeah, so... I would imagine just like Juno is already teaching us interesting things about Jupiter that we didn't know before and we're seeing things we haven't seen before. And just as uh, when Cassini comes to its end, it's going to teach us things about the internal composition of Saturn in its final, you know, as it's making its final death dive. No! Sorry, a little Cassini. Mm angst there um <laughs> the the parker solar probe is going to really i think my guess is teach us some stuff that we just did not know before about it's going about the sun it's going to give pe- solar scientists a lot of stuff to chew on in terms of um understanding because there's a lot about the sun we don't understand because there's only so much that you can tell from here and uh, this is going to really advance knowledge of, of how the sun works. And knowing how sun, the stars work in general is uh, kind of important to understanding how the universe works. And it's coming up next year. So this will be one that we can uh, keep tabs on and, yeah. and you know, watch launch and, and do its thing. So, so yeah, the uh, Solar Probe Plus, new name, fun mission. Parker Solar Probe, double plus. Super hot outside. Basically what you need now. That's right. In a heat wave, I think we all need a little cutting-edge thermal engineering advances, yeah. right? Just I'd to... put some of the stuff on the roof of my studio. Like, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> uh, if you want to find uh, links to all this stuff, you can do so at our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 49. You can follow us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next trip into the sun, Jason, say goodbye. I don't want to go to the sun. Bye. (laughs) Adios. Adios.